All right, if you will, uh, turn with me to Judges chapter 6. <clears throat> and when you're there, um, let's pray real quick. <clears throat> Dear Lord, uh, as always, uh, we are grateful to be gathered together uh, in your house uh, with your people. Um, Father, we're grateful for your word um, that has been given to us. Uh, Father, I pray um, that your word would be preached. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would give us understanding. I pray that uh, your son would be glorified, and I pray that your people would be built up uh, by the preaching of your word. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a very familiar story to, I would say, almost all of us. Uh, this is the story of Gideon uh, that uh, no doubt we've probably heard hundreds of times in our lives. If you've been in church, you know, very popular Sunday school story. Um, what's interesting, though, is uh, most of us have only heard the first half of the story. Hardly ever uh, does the second half of Gideon's life get much of any attention um, and uh, so, anyways, I, I think it's important as we go through this, we're going to, it's, it's pretty long. It's actually the longest account of any of the judges. So we're not going to read every single bit of it, but I do want to go through the entire story and then kind of break it down after that. As we go through, I want you to think about Gideon's life and how it starts off and how it, and, and, and the, the most famous moment of the great battle that he had against the Midianites. And then at the end of his life uh, that we also have recorded for us. And in thinking about this, I think about his life as almost like a mountain peak or like stair steps, that he starts off really low and really humble and, and kind of gets gradually built up until this moment where uh, he leads the Israelites or portion of the Israelites in battle against the Midianites. And that's kind of the, the absolute high point of Gideon's life. And after that moment, you see Gideon begin to to slowly uh, 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 go into depravity until he gets to the end of his life. And so it, it actually almost kind of uh, mirrors the first part of his life. The second part of his life is kind of mirrored with the, with the, the, uh, the fulcrum of that being, being uh, the, the battle uh, that we see in chapter 7. Um, so it's kind of interesting to think about it like that. Um, and... Uh, uh, that'll kind of help you maybe kind of uh, conceptualize uh, what uh, the, the writer of Judges is trying to communicate to us. So remember uh, the last time uh, we were with Deborah and Barak and there was the huge battle that they had and then the poem that was written about it in chapter 5. And we leave off and um, at the very last verse of chapter 5 we see that um, the land uh, of Israel had peace for 40 years. And then uh, a very, very familiar phrase begins us in chapter 6. Uh, then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against the Israel, because Midian, uh, the sons of Israel, made for themselves dens in, which were in the mountains and in the caves and in the strongholds. So this should remind us of chapter 1. If you remember... Uh, several weeks ago we went through chapter 1 and, it, and it's just kind of going through and giving a summary of all the battles that all the, all the uh, tribes of Israel fought. You remember down at the very, very end uh, there was one tribe uh, that did not even possess the land because they were afraid of the people that were in the land and they had to hide in the mountains and in the caves and all that. Um, 
the author is obviously kind of pointing back to that to kind of bring that picture back to your mind that that's what's going on is that um, and to kind of help explain what was going on uh, with the other times that Israel was occupied by enemies that we've seen the enemy would come take over Israel and set up shop in the nation of Israel and be there oppressing them, ruling over them, putting them into slavery and all of that until eventually a judge would, would uh, rise up, defeat this enemy and run them off. Well, this particular case is, is unique in that uh, the Midianites did not actually move into Israel and set up shop. Instead, they had this, uh, this uh, strategy where they would stay east of the Jordan River uh, where their home was and an army every single year at harvest time would swoop in and take all of Israel's harvest. Um, and so that's why the people were having to hide. They were having, when harvest time came, they knew the Midianites were coming. They did this for seven straight years. Every single year the Midianites would come, they'd set up shop, and they would uh, take all of the harvest and take the livestock and all this other. And so Israel was starving to death. Um, I find it interesting that they that Israel was worshiping Baal, um, who you know, like we talked before, was a, a god of of the harvest, a god of rains and, and weather, and so they would worship Baal in hopes of achieving a good harvest, in hopes that their livestock would do well, in hopes that they would be fed and provided for. And God's response to that is, okay, if that's what you worship, then I'm going to take that away. And He took away their provision and took away their food uh, by using the Midianites to do this. Um, and so it's just kind of interesting that Israel had put their trust and their hope in um, what they could provide for themselves. And rather than trusting God for, to provide for them, they tried their own way to provide for themselves. And God shows them that uh, their trust cannot be in that. Their trust had to be in Him. So, verse 2, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel because Midian, the sons of Israel, made for themselves dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Uh, for it was when Israel had sown, uh, the Midianites would come up and the Amalekites and the sons of the east would go against them. Uh, so they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth uh, uh, as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts in number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they would came into the land to devastate it. Um, his use of uh, uh, likening the Midianites to locusts is, is, not, uh, is not haphazard. So it's supposed to uh, bring up this imagery of a plague. And this, this would be similar to a plague. And so the people of Israel are finding themselves on the receiving end of a plague. Whereas before God would use plagues like in uh, Egypt against the enemies of the children of God. Now the children of God are in this place of being on the receiving end of a plague. Um, verse 6, So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. <clears throat> Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God, uh, the God of Israel, It is I who brought you out from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery, delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians into the hands of your oppressors, and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. 
And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in, those, in the land whose you live, but you have not obeyed me. And so you get this idea that although Israel was calling out to God, it wasn't so much that they realized the a level of sin. They were just at a point of desperation, and now calling out to Baal hasn't helped, so they decided to call out to God. And so God sends them a prophet to say, hey, listen, this, this is the reason why this is happening to you, because you've not obeyed, because you've not trusted in me to provide for you. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who has provided for you all the way since the beginning, and yet you refuse to trust me and obey me. And that is the reason this is happening. Um, verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak, which is at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite and his son Gideon, who was beating out wet wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. So think about this picture. To thresh out wheat, they would take the, the stalks of wheat with the little grains on the end, and they would lay it out on a big threshing floor out in, out in, the, out in the open, and an ox would pull uh, something called a threshing sled over the wheat, and it would cause the kernels of wheat to come off, and the wind would blow the, the remaining parts of the wheat they didn't want away. Well, Gideon is having to do this by hand, and he's having to do it indoors in a wine press because he's afraid of the Midianites to come. So um, anyway, just kind of get that picture in your head. That, that's what he's doing. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, verse 12, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Um, which this guy is cowardly, hiding away, doing his, you know, trying to get just enough wheat to feed his family. And God comes in and calls him valiant warrior. Um, and so many people want to take this and say, oh, well, you know, God knew Gideon was going to be valiant. And God was just, re you know, revealing to Gideon who's actually, who he actually is. But I really think God's being sarcastic. Um, Joey, this is actually the word uh, 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 gibor that, that you talked about on Wednesday night. Um, so it's, it's a word in Hebrew that would mean a mighty valiant warrior. This is the way David described his, his mighty men. And when a man uses it to talk about another man, it's, uh, it's usually a positive thing. When God uses it, he's usually being satirical. He's usually kind of, kind of making fun of them. Um, and so I, I think that's probably uh, what the reader is trying to get at, is God is being kind of tongue-in-cheek when he says that. Um, so verse 13, Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord... If the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And, and where are all of His miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So he's right in that God did cause the Midianites to take them over. He is wrong in that God had ever abandoned them. Um, God still reached out to them by sending them a prophet. Um, he still reached out to them by coming to Gideon. Um, this phrase, uh, the, the uh, angel of the Lord, um, some translations will translate that messenger of the Lord. Um, you know, a lot of people read this, and I, I kind of agree with them that this is actually a, a, a manifestation of God Himself. And the reason why is because of the way that Gideon responds at the end. Gideon initially does not know who this is. Um, he's not sure who this is. He saw the, he no doubt heard what the prophet said because he's repeating the prophet's words. Um, to this, this character that's approached him. Uh, but he uh, immediately begins uh, questioning God. 
um, to God's face. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. He obviously doesn't realize who he's talking to, and we'll see that uh, reflected when he finally does figure it out at the end. Um, let's see. So verse 14, Then the Lord looked at him, and I, I absolutely love the patience of God here, that this, that, uh, this uh, Gideon has just insulted God to his face. And instead of striking him dead, God in his mercy and in his patience decides to continue to use this feller to save Israel. Uh, the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest of my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign, that is, that you speak with me. Please do not depart from me here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until then. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat uh, and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. And he put that meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. Uh, the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on the frog and pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put, uh, put out to the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that the angel of the Lord... Uh, that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it the Lord is Peace. And it still stands to this day. So a lot of people take the story of Gideon and say, Okay, well, you know, we, when God speaks to us, we need to test God and see. And, and that's not, this is not an example of how to act. This is an example of God being patient with Gideon's insolence and with God actually condescending down to Gideon's level and saying, okay, if you really need this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you. Um, and uh, you know, we see that later on when uh, he does the deal with putting out the fleece and all of that, that God is incredibly patient with Gideon um, despite, despite all of Gideon's shortcomings, that God just continues to, to uh, uh, continue to work through Gideon. Um, and, and, and not uh, move on to someone else who would be better fitting. And there's a reason for that. The whole point of this story is for us to see that it is God who delivered Israel. Um, the man that we meet in chapter 6 could by no means uh, uh, do the miraculous thing that Gideon does in leading this army, in, in, in doing all that he does to free the people of Israel. It's obviously God in him. Um, so the first thing that the... That the um, angel asked him to do is to tear down the altar to Baal. And so there was an altar to Baal, and then beside it was a big gigantic pole that would have been for the worship of Ashtoreth, which was Baal's uh, girlfriend or wife in their, in their mythology. Um, and, and apparently Gideon's family was in charge of the town uh, uh, um, shrine that they had to the gods. And so it was his family, and, and so the thought is that Gideon was actually part of having to keep up the shrine and, and, and kind of work there and, and, and do, I guess, what would be something like priestly work at the shrine. I don't, I don't know. But 
Um, anyways, the angel of the Lord wants him to tear that shrine down as a first act of courage, as a first act of, of, of uh, stating which side you're going to be on. Uh, he had to make a definite decision and, and tear down this altar so that um, it would be clear that he served the one true God and not, and not Baal. So uh, <clears throat> he, uh, let's see, verse 27, Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it was also cut down. And the second bull uh, was offered on the altar which had been built. Um, then the city, the, the people start questioning, hey, who did this? And, and they get up this mob and they want to kill Gideon. And Gideon's father, um, in a moment of wisdom, says, hey, if Baal really is a god, he can defend himself. And so with that, they just kind of disperse and let it go. They give Gideon this nickname, uh, Jerubbabel. Um, which, uh, which means uh, Baal will provide for himself or Baal will protect himself. So in other passages, you'll see Gideon referred to as Jerubbabel. And so that shouldn't, shouldn't confuse you, uh, but just, it's just kind of a different name for him. Uh, after that, Gideon uh, tests God once more to decide if this is really what God wants him to do, if God's really going to be with him, if he can really take God at his word. Um, and of course, we know how that story ends. That that uh, God does, in fact, uh, give him the sign uh, that God is going to be with him. So, uh, chapter seven, verse one. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, uh, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moriah, the valley. Then the Lord said to Gideon, "The people who are with you are too many for me to." Give you uh, for me to give Midian into your hands, for Israel would would come uh, boastful, saying, "My own power has delivered me." Now, therefore, come and proclaim in the hearing of these people: Whoever is afraid and trembling, let them return and depart from Mount Gilead. So, twenty-two thousand people returned, and uh, but ten thousand remained. So, to kind of picture what Gideon is up against, he's gone and he's called out. Um, from two or three of the surrounding tribes to send soldiers to come fight the Midianites. The Midianites had an army of 135,000 people that were camped out there. And it mentioned earlier they had the camels. They, they talk about how many camels they had. They just had tons and tons of camels. And to us that doesn't really mean much. Like, okay, you know, I've seen camels at the zoo. They kind of roam around and are kind of lazy looking or whatever. But at this time when a, an army had to move by foot... You know, at best, an army could move 10, 15, maybe 20 miles in a day. With the assistance of camels, they were able to move 100 miles a day. So this is what allowed the Midianites to rush in and, and take all of their, their uh, produce and, and everything from their harvest and, and come back out and have their, their city far enough away that it, that it wasn't uh, in fear of being attacked. Just, just by having the camel. So it, it's kind of meant to make us think, uh, kind of remind us of when Deborah and Barak were going against um, the Amalekites and they had the, the chariots of iron. So again, you have an army that is, uh, what, four or five times bigger than his with, with advanced technology, with, with greater resources. Um, 
And the point is to understand just the great insurmountable task that was before Gideon. And then God looks at him and says, ah, you know what, you've got 35,000, that's way too many. Um, and so, you know, we know the story, God, God pared it down and pared it down to 300 men. Um, I wouldn't read too much into the test that uh, they take uh, to weed down the men. I think it was just kind of a way that God had decided to use. I, you know, some people want to take, uh, well, the men that lapped up water did this, and the men that knelt down did this, and they want to try to overanalyze that. I really think it's just a dumb test. Just to, just to, just to pare down, God said, hey, this is a really simple way for us to decide who goes and who doesn't go. Um, so, anyways, don't read too much into that. But, but God takes the army down to 300 men. And, uh, you know, we all know the story. He's got this very bizarre battle plan that he's going to take. But first, Gideon once again has doubts. And so Gideon goes, and um, the night before the big battle, he goes and takes a, a guy with him. And uh, they go to spy on the army. And uh, they overhear two guys talking in the camp, and one of them's had a dream where a, a, a loaf of bread has rolled into the tent, hit the tent post, and knocked it down. And then, you know, as if that wasn't enough symbolism for Gideon to pick up on what it is, the other guy, who's a Midianite that's talking to him, interprets the dream and says, that probably means Gideon's going to destroy us. And so Gideon hears that, and that's all, all that he needs. Now he's ready to go. He immediately starts worshiping God at that. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, let's see. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. Verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put the trumpets and the empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with the torches inside of the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and, and do likewise. And behold, when I come down to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I come down and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. So this is a very, very bizarre battle plan, and it turns out to be just incredibly genius with how it worked out and how God, through His providence, actually made this, this really weird plan come together. So they go, and you think you've got this camp. You've got 135,000 um, uh, uh, soldiers. You've got all these camels. You've got this big, huge military operation. They surround the camp at nighttime. They go at about 10 o'clock, and... At this point, the centuries that were, that were watching, their shift had ended, and the other centuries were getting up to go take their turn at watch. And so you had this change of the guard. You had, you had one set of guys going one direction, one set of guys going the other direction. It's the middle of the night. They can't see anything. And all of a sudden, all around their camp, they hear this gigantic loud sound of the trumpets, and all of a sudden, there's all this light. And so they freak out, and they think that the, you know, we suspect that they think that the guards that were coming off duty were thought to be Israelites, and then they saw the other men moving, and they thought they might be Israelites, so they all start attacking each other. And so Gideon and his men never have to lift a finger, and the whole camp is wiped out just because of the confusion that's created. Um, 
But I do find it interesting. Um, so verse uh, verse twenty. So this is the this is the account of the battle. When the three companies blew their trumpets and broke their pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in the right hands for and blowing and cried a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. So the whole point of this battle, the whole point of all this, that this is supposed to, the way this is supposed to go down is that God would get glory. And we see a change in Gideon. And he is so bold as to ask the men to also shout his name as they're shouting uh, when they go into battle. So this is kind of the moment, I think, that we begin to see Gideon's true colors come out. So he starts off this very sheepish, cowardly little dude who's, you know, humble of heart and, oh, you know, my family's so small and we're from this little tribe, this little part of this little tribe, and, and we're so poor and we just can't do anything. And then when he goes into battle, he wants them to also shout his name. Even though God has done everything to teach Gideon, this battle is about me. I want, I want to get the glory from this battle, and Gideon just can't help himself but take a little bit of glory for himself. So he has them call out God's name, call out his name. Um, and uh, so they, they, they run these guys off. And, and that's the end of the story for most people. Most people stop right there and we, you know, we close our Sunday school books and we go into to a big church or whatever and then go about thinking Gideon's a hero. But this is exactly the point where things turn and make this terrible turn for the worse. And Gideon begins all of this all of this uh, virtue that Gideon has built up to this point, he then begins to gradually chip away at um, until we get down uh, to the end. And we're left kind of wondering, what, what, what is Gideon? Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he somewhere in between? And then we also have to weigh that with the, the writer of Hebrews, brings up Gideon as an example of faith. And is he looking at Gideon's whole life? Is he looking at just this one instance where Gideon did, by faith, take 300 men into battle against 135,000? I don't know. What's interesting, though, is after this point in the story, God's not mentioned anymore. This is the last time that God's mentioned in all of this. Um, uh, you know, and, and then you know, after Gideon's life, we go into this bizarre story with one of his sons, and you know, we'll get there later, but... Um, this is it. And then after that, we stop seeing God being involved and we start seeing Gideon begin to take control. So, uh, let's see. So, verse 22, they blew the 300 trumpets. Uh, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even though the whole army, uh, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as uh, Beth Shittah towards uh, Zerah, uh, as far as the edge from. Abel, uh, Mehola by Tabith. So, if you had a map in front of you, you could probably see that that's um, 25, 30 miles away from where they were. So, the army ran a long way away. So, Gideon has accomplished what God told him to accomplish. His, his army has now liberated the children of Israel from the Midianites. Um, but look at what Gideon does next. Verse 23, Then the men... Of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. So, right before this, we see that he had called men from all of those different tribes, and God sent them back home because the battle was supposed to be about God winning this battle. And now that the tides have turned, and Gideon now is full of all of this courage, 
He calls the men back so that they can go and wipe Midian out completely. And that's not what God told him to do. He, he's, he's now doing this for his own reasons. And we'll find out later why he's actually doing this. Then Gideon, verse 24, sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took, took the waters as far as uh, Beth Barah, the Jordan. So the, the tribe of Ephraim was tasked with blocking off the river and not letting them cross back over the river to get back to their home. So they were supposed to, uh, Gideon's chasing him uh, from the east to the west. Ephraim's set up on the west and they are blocking off the river so they can't run so that they'll meet him and, and, and beat him on both sides. Um, verse 25, they captured two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed them. Uh, at the rock of Oreb and the winepress of Zeb while they, while they pursued Midian. And uh, they brought the heads of those two guys to Gideon across the Jordan. <clears throat> then the men of Ephraim, verse 1 of chapter 8, said to him, What is this thing that you've done to us, not calling us uh, when you went to fight against Midian? Um, and one thing you, you'll see in studying the Old Testament, is Ephraim kind of has this reputation of just loving a good fight. And they get really, really angry if you're going to go fight and you don't ask them to come help. Um, there's actually another instance in the book of Judges where the same exact thing happens. And, um, you know, here Gideon actually flatters them and says, hey, you did such a good job. You guys are fantastic. And it kind of calms everything down. Um, later, the, the, the judge that's... Um, in the middle of this conflict with Ephraim, uh, he basically starts a war and kills 45,000 of them over all this deal. So, um, and just when you get to chapter 12, it kind of helps you see f how much further uh, we have gone towards depravity in that this instance was, was resolved with just a kind word and civility and not getting hot-headed. And, you know, the other instance just went terribly. Um, so anyways, uh, let's go to verse 4. Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, but they were weary, yet they kept pursuing. And he said to the men of Sukkot, uh, Please give us loaves and bread uh, to the people who are following me, for they're weary, and I'm pursuing uh, Zeba and Zalmunna. This is two of the other kings of Midian. The leaders of Sukkot said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands? Then we should give you bread to your army. Uh, Gideon said, All right, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zamuna into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went up to Penuel and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him just as the men of Sukkot had. And he spoke to them also, saying, When I return safely, I will tear down this tower. So he goes to these two Israelite cities asking for help. And they say, You know what? Not until... We, we don't know that you can do this. We don't have confidence that you can do this. And no, we're not going to help you. And now this cowardly little humble man is now breathing threats against entire cities. And he tells the first city that uh, he's going to thrash their flesh on briars and thorns. So the word that is translated thrash here is the same word thresh like you do for wheat, which is what Gideon was doing to begin with. 
So Gideon initially was threshing wheat, and now he's going to thresh sons of God. He's, and he's using this as a threat. And then it's kind of interesting. His next threat is to go to Penuel and do what? Tear down their tower, just like he tore down the altar before. So you see that he was heading in such a good direction. He started off threshing weed, and then he's going to tear down this altar, and then he's going to go to battle for God. And now he's going to start threshing human beings. He's going to tear down tower of his brothers and destroy them. And now he's going to battle for himself. Um, so he leaves without getting provisions. Um, he goes uh, up against, um, there's 15,000 men left, we see in verse 10, out of the original 135,000. Um, and Gideon goes up against them with his 300 men and supposedly the guys from the other tribes, and he defeats them. And he captures these two kings, um, uh, Zeba and Zalmunna, and uh, so he captures them, and rather than killing them, he takes them with him, and he goes back to Sukkot and captures a young man. In, in Sukkot and says, I want you to write down the names of the 70 uh, uh, leaders of the city so that I can deal with them. And so they apparently interrogate him until he gives up the names of the people. They go into the city. Uh, verse 16, he took the elders of the city uh, and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. Um, and then verse 17, he tore down the tower. So he, he did what he said he was going to do. Just kind of an interesting aside. So if you've got an ESV, Rob, I'm sure you've got ESV. What does it say he did to the men of Sukkoth? 16. He taught them a lesson. NASB translates it, disciplined them. Um, the word here is the Hebrew word yadah which means to know or to give knowledge. So he taught them a lesson. He made them to know something. This same Hebrew word is used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Adam, Yadad, Eve, and they had a son. So it's, it's the word that we use to know. It's an experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge that you gain only from having experience. So Adam knew Eve in an experiential way, and they had Seth. He's making these men know something <laughs> in an experience that's a very, very negative experience, and they're learning something. I think it's interesting, though, that that word has such a sweet and precious uh, uh, meaning elsewhere where it's used in Scripture, and here the writer is using that sweet and precious word to talk about something that is so horrible and, and depraved that you just can't, you can't talk about it without it making sick at your stomach. Um, and I think it's purposeful. I think he's meaning to use that so that we get just how far things have gone. That, that what used to be and could be uh, beautiful and wonderful is now being used in terrible ways. So I, I think that's kind of interesting use of the word Yadah. Um, so verse 18, then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, that's the two kings of Midian, uh, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? This is the first any of us have heard of this. We don't even know who he's talking about. And they said, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had only let them live, I would not kill you. 
So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. Uh, but the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. And then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise up for yourself and fall on us. For as the man, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camel's necks. So now we see Gideon's motivation. Now we see why he continued tracing after Midian. He was getting revenge. This has nothing to do with obedience to God, nothing to do with faith. This is all complete selfishness. And he's tracked these two guys down, and he's called them out because they killed all of his brothers, uh, seemingly in, in one of the raids that they did every year. Um, Gideon's brothers were killed by these two guys, and so he's, he's trying to enact vengeance. Um, and he tries to drag his son into it, and his son doesn't have the stomach for it. I think that's kind of interesting. His son is kind of like chapter 6 Gideon, that he's afraid to do this. He's, he's you know, humble. He's not really wanting to be this violent. And Gideon now has taken this violent turn, and this really dark turn, and is trying to drag his own son into it. Uh, and his son doesn't have the stomach for it. So after all of this, verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and also your son's sons, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So they want him to be king. He's done all of this, and he's risen from the little wimpy guy hanging out, threshing some wheat for his family, to now the nation is looking at him to be a king. Um, and verse 23, But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. Nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And so this is kind of puzzling. We're, we're seeing Gideon go in this direction, and then we see him seemingly um, turn down being king. And, and with, oh, maybe Gideon isn't such a bad guy. Maybe he is trying his best, and he just, you know, let revenge get the best of him. But look at what the next, next verse says. Um, verse 24. <laughs> But Gideon said to them, I would request this of you, that each one of you give me an earring from your spoil, uh, for he had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Uh, and they said, we'll surely give them to you. So that they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, uh, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes, which were, the kings of, which were from the kings of Midian. And besides the neckbands that were on their camels' necks. And Gideon made into it an ephod, uh, which is placed in the city, Orpha. And all of Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. So from the man who doesn't want to be king, he's already taken up taxes. He's asking something from all the people. He says, no, I don't want to be king, but why don't you give me some taxes? And I'm going to take this and I'm going to... Make it into something. This is, make, this, is, this is to make us remember what happened at Mount Sinai. This is so similar in story and how it's written that what Aaron did by taking up what they had, their, their earrings and stuff that they had from, from Egypt and making them into a golden calf. Now Gideon's doing the same thing. He's turned it into an ephod. So an ephod is, is a priestly garment. Um, so when the uh, Israelites would, would inquire of the word of the Lord, they would have two rocks. They'd have a, a white rock and a black rock. And they would keep them in a pocket in the ephod. And it, you know, like, it'd be kind of like rolling a magic eight ball or something. They'd reach in there and grab one, and whichever rock came out was supposed to be what God said. So that's 
kind of help you conceptualize what, what an ephod is. And this one he made out of gold, and it's like 45 to 75 pounds of gold, depending on how you measure it. So it's not meant to be worn. He put it up on a stand. And when it says that they played the harlot with it, that is a way of describing that they worshipped it. It, it, is, it is to invoke this idea that they're worshipping this the same way that they worshipped um, Baal and Ashtaroth. So what uh, Gideon first set out to do of rid the country of idolatry, now he's used the spoils of war that he got from the war that God gave him, the war that God won for him, he's using the spoils to make an idol. And um, it says that it became a snare to him and to his household. So Midian uh, was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So despite all of that, God was still gracious to give them rest. And I find that just amazing. The patience of God with these people um, is just, just unfathomable. Um, that he continued to give them rest despite all of this. And um, so thinking of that and thinking of our own country, it, it, just, it should make you weep at the patience of God that he has, uh, he has for us. Um, uh, so verse 29, Then Jerubbabel the son of Joash went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. Uh, and his concubine bore him uh, his his concubine who was in Shechem bore him a son and he named him Abimelech and Gideon the son of Joash died at the ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Orpha of the Abizurites. So for a guy who said he didn't want to be king, he sure is acting a lot like one. He took up taxes, he set up state religion, he has uh, uh, taken all of these wives and concubines, and he named his son Abimelech, which means my daddy is king. That's what the name actually means. He named his son that. So for someone who says he doesn't want to be king, he sure does enjoy acting like one. And he died at, the ripe, at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his fathers. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. The sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel, that is to Gideon, in accordance with all of the good that he had done in Israel. So the name of this God, Baal Baroth, means the God of the covenant. So they actually made a covenant with this other God, um, totally forgetting the covenant that the, the, the one true God had made with them. So what do we do with this story? Um, you know, it starts off as a really good story and a lot of motivational stuff. And, you know, God believes in you because he knows who you are. And then, um, you know, you can take it all those different directions. But when you read the whole thing, you're left at the end not really knowing what to do with Gideon. He did some good stuff. He did some bad stuff. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just kind of difficult to deal with. But remember that each and every one of these stories is not just a story for the sake of itself. It's God telling his story, God telling the gospel to us through what happened in history. And like we talked about to begin with, these, these uh, stories were prophetic in that God is speaking to his people through what happened in the story. And, um, you know, obviously when we see a hero character, we have to stand that character up against Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate hero of Scripture. There is no other hero in Scripture besides Christ. And so 
the beginnings, we kind of see some similarities in that Jesus came from obscurity and, and, and uh, Gideon came from obscurity. And so, you know, that's, that imagery is supposed to kind of bring that to mind. But quickly we see their paths diverge where Christ was faithful and obedient and he trusted in what God had put, put forth for him to do. Christ also had an insurmountable task to complete, but he did so faithfully. He did so not taking credit for himself like Gideon did. And he uh, uh, um, finished well. He did not, he did not fall from, uh, from uh, obedience. He did not fall from grace in the way that Gideon did as well. Um, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Um, so I'm not the only one that sees the similarities here. And, 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 and Isaiah actually brings up nope that may be the wrong one let's see it might be 9 hang on yes okay so it's chapter 9 Isaiah is going to bring up the story of Gideon um and he's going to do so and, uh, in an interesting way and, and talk about um, what's to come. Let's start in chapter one of, of, uh, in verse one of chapter nine of Isaiah. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea and the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people, who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine upon them. Um, he's talking about the battle against the Midianites. So remember it happened in the middle of the night and all of a sudden there was a great light shining on the people who were in darkness. Um, you shall multiply, verse 3, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will become glad in your, in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest. Once again, the Midianites came every day, every year at harvest, and the harvest time would have been a time of dread for the people of Israel. But he's telling us that there will be a time where the harvest time is a glad time. Um, As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden, and the staff of their and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, of the oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. See, he's talking about judges. Uh, For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and the cloak rolled in blood, uh, for there will be burning uh, fuel for the fire. For For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his governance or peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So Isaiah saw this. He saw what was going on with the story of Gideon. And in the middle of the story of Gideon, we're all excited about this hero. We're all ready to jump behind this hero. We're all ready to make this hero king. But this guy is no hero, and this guy is not worthy to be a king. And thankfully, he recognized that. 
by turning down the kingship. But, you know, as we see, despite that, his greed and his lust for power could not be satiated, and he continued to pursue after those things. But Isaiah contrasts that with our Savior, who had no qualms about being called a king. When Pilate said, are you a king? He said, it is what you say. He had no qualms about anyone calling him king, and yet every action that he took was something that was not what a king would do, not what we expect a king to do. He didn't didn't lust after power and after glory and after fame and after money like Gideon did, but instead he served us. Instead he gave himself up. Rather than self-preservation and getting revenge for himself like Gideon, Jesus loved his enemies. He washed their feet and he gave himself up for us. And that is why his kingdom will have no end. Gideon's kingdom that he set up, it ended. He, we learn in the very next chapter that his son Abimelech rose up and caused a ton of trouble and disaster. But there is no successor to Jesus' kingdom because he lives forever. He doesn't, we don't have to worry about him dying and having some crazy son take over and do disastrous things because his kingdom lasts forever. And so although we find ourselves tempted to put our faith and trust in men like Gideon, Um, Men like Gideon will disappoint you every time, but the Savior that is promised in Isaiah chapter 9 will never disappoint. Let's pray.